Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. My guest today is Pam Simon. She's been working on a memoir about being a survivor of the January 8th shooting in Tucson, which led her to be an activist for gun violence prevention. Pam Simon was a high school and middle school English teacher for many years before she went to work in the congressional office for her friend Gabby Giffords. After the shooting, she worked for Mayor Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns for two years and now serves as a volunteer for Moms Demand Action and frequently speaks at a variety of events and forums. She is a part of the Everytown National Survivor Network, which is referred to as the club no one wants to be in. Pam Simon has met many people that inspire her with their incredible resilience. Thanks for coming, Pam. Thanks, Amanda. It's great to be here. The first time I ever met you, Pam, was uh, at the end of 2010. KXCI was having an auction, and we wrote to Gabby Gifford's office and asked for a donation. Uh, you know, Raul Grijalva does little cartoon drawings, and we thought, well, you know, maybe there's something from the Gifford's office. And you brought in a book uh, about Isabel Greenway that Gabby Giffords gave to the KXCI auction. I remember that, and that was one of the favorite parts for me of that job as community outreach coordinator is getting out in the community and meeting people. Um, it was also fun to get out into the community because for 25 years I'd been in a classroom all day. Even though I love being in the classroom, it was fun to uh, get out and meet people such as yourself. And then just a few short weeks later, really, uh, as uh, Tucsonans know, uh, the January 8th shooting took place in Tucson. And that impacted your life. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of where, where do you begin? Um, it, um, it impacted my life, but it also impacted the lives of almost everyone in Tucson. Um, there's not a day goes by that I don't hear the phrase, on that day I was. And everyone has a story. Uh, my story, of course, is being wounded and surviving that and continuing on with my life as an activist. But um, I, I would hear stories from people that maybe the cake decorator in the Safeway or the person that was having coffee at the cafe across the street. And in some cases, it profoundly affected their lives. Um, students that say they changed their major because of it. Uh, people that decided to volunteer that hadn't done it before. So if I do a second book, it will be On That Day I Was. What really got you to writing a memoir about this? You know, at first I just wrote and wrote and wrote kind of to get my experience on paper. And also I think it was um, my desire to um, record the memories because after a trauma, whether it's you know a shooting trauma or whether it's another kind of trauma, um, it um, a um, counselor explained it to me. It's like a hard drive, and that trauma fills up that hard drive, leaving only a little slice left to remember things like your dentist appointment and you know what you were supposed to do that day. 
So there's a period of time that you feel like you've lost your mind. And I've heard many other survivors say that as well. And so I, I had all these people and experiences that had come to me very quickly that I wanted to record. People that I had met, um, very touching cards and letters from school children, Sunday school groups all over the country. So I, I wrote not only that, but what actually I was thinking that day and, and my responses to, uh, to the immediate event. Then as time went on, um, I had a dear friend whose daughter suffered an aneurysm and about six months later. And so I went to San Francisco to be with my friend and help out. And I realized I had learned a lot. Um, I'd learned how to, um, I'd learned things that I wished that people had done or that I had done. Um, and I, uh, such as having a little book to write down all the doctors and therapists that were coming through because you can't, you get them mixed up. And my friend said, you know, you've learned a lot. You should write down, you, you should write a book. And at that point, I'm thinking self-help or inspirational and not having any idea what you're talking about when you say you're going to write a book. It's a huge project. So uh, so that's, in, in answer to your question, that's really what got me started. I found that I needed some emotional distance before I could really delve into it. So there was a first wave, and now I'm in the second wave. Pam Simon, let's hear a sample of your writing that you've been working on. Can you tell us about what this piece is? I can. I, I wrote this piece um, early on maybe in the second year after the shooting. It may or may not actually end up in the book, but it has been published as uh, an excerpt in the Evening Street Review, the uh, Autumn 2017 Literary Review. I was trying to kind of talk about uh, the internal wounds that happened to not just myself, but to all survivors. So uh, I'd be happy to read it. My two gunshot wounds were probably made by a single bullet. The doctors couldn't say for sure, but their theory was that I had raised my forearm when I saw the gun, which slowed the bullet's velocity as it headed downward. It missed my heart by an inch, bounced around between my ribs, lodged in my hip. The plan was to let it lie there quietly embedded, and eventually my bullet and I would meet the grave together. Then the wound became infected, making me nauseous and feverish. The doctor said it needed to come out. I awoke from the surgery to find Dr. Peter Ree, who removed countless bits of shrapnel from soldiers in Iraq, standing at my bedside. He held up the little slug with tweezers, groggy from anesthesia. I said, can I keep it? It was so tiny, stub-nosed. This will be going to the FBI, he informed me. The bullet clinked into the glass. Five months later, the skid marks across one breast and an entry point on the other had pretty much disappeared. The in and out wounds on my right wrist looked like faint cigarette burns. I twist my bare dripping body to get a clearer view in the steamy mirror. The incision was deep and had to be packed with gauze. It hurt like hell. Once the dressing was abandoned, the gash remained crimson for months. 
Now I can hardly see the wound. I run my hand down my waist and locate the slight ridge. It's all but gone. I'm upset that the scars are fading. They help explain why I'm so utterly, inexplicably tired and why I still forget details, appointments, things I should be able to handle. The sudden urge to crumple and sob has not left in all these months that my skin has been knitting back together. My assumptive reality that I could go to a grocery store on a Saturday morning in safety has been turned upside down. I have missed many segments of movies and concerts as I planned escape routes from the theater. A popping balloon at a child's birthday party causes my heart to lurch. If the scars are gone, then I should be able to handle everything. I feel like calling them back. I drop the towel and step away from the bathroom mirror. It is a work day. I need to get moving. I value each minute nowadays, but the value added to those minutes is also a burden. Like great-grandmother's china dishes, my remaining time has become too precious to be enjoyed and used. Always a question beats in the back of my mind like a steady drum. I got to live, so what is expected of me? God must have more work for you to do, friends and acquaintances say in an attempt to comfort. My unspoken retort is, God didn't think I was working hard enough? What exactly did God extend my life for? To build an orphanage, restore peace in the Middle East, clean off the top of my desk? Is that the bargain? I pull on my underwear, skirt, and blouse. My clothing covers the fading scars, and a smile hides my injured spirit. I'm just carrying on, trying to act like I did before, but I can't find that person. You're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. That was Pam Simon. She is a survivor from Tucson's January 8th shooting. That piece was published in the Evening Street Review. It's such a beautiful, clear writing, and I really believe it touches on so many things that we don't think about. Well, it's truly made me realize in meeting so many survivors over the last seven years, uh, as part of the Everytown Survivor Network, uh, we've become, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, a club, a family. Um, we support each other, uh, stay in touch via Facebook pages. But what I hear from everyone is long after the trauma, there are those internal scars. Obviously, for those that uh, had a loved one taken, the scars are much deeper. And I have become very interested in how people cope, their, their resiliency. What is the nature of that resiliency? And it's very different for different people. But over and over, I come back to the fact that um, we as humans are amazingly resilient. And I see people who have suffered deep, deep losses and severe injuries, such as my friend Gabby. And carry on, inspire others, and make a difference in the world. Are there some commonalities to the resilience that you've discovered? Yes, um, I believe there are. For many people, it is their faith that gives them a higher goal, a higher purpose. And certainly, uh, my faith community was a huge part of my recovery. 
But I also think that it is a sense of purpose, that they can do something to keep others from experiencing the tragedy they did. And uh, that is that is why so many of us work so hard on gun violence prevention, because we have experienced uh, the horrific nature of that kind of violence. So across the country, I see people who have lost children, have lost spouses, have lost parents, and yet they are standing there telling their story, meeting with congressmen, meeting with lobbyists, sharing their story in any way they can that will lead us to a safer country. Have you been surprised by the response to telling your story? I don't know that I actually had an expectation Right at first after the shooting, um, so often, you know, I'd go to Starbucks or into a grocery store, and somebody that I either didn't know or barely know would recognize me, and, um, you know, and suddenly they'd be sobbing on my shoulder, and I would be comforting them. And this this was shared with many, many survivors. And so uh, we, you know, I have, have an under—actually, I was appreciative— uh, that they wanted to reach out. Um, but there is a little bit of humor in that you're the wounded one and you're now <laughs> comforting this person. But it actually brought to mind how wide range the the incident, whether whether it's the incident that happened to us, but how a tragedy has the ripple effects and how deeply it affects other people. Um, and... Uh, I also recognize that time moves on and people have a tendency to forget. That's very natural. And yet I also know for that person who's lost a loved one or is still, even if their scars are covered, they're experiencing continual pain, as some of the January 8th survivors are, um, it's never forgotten. So um, some sometimes people have to be reminded as one of the survivors whose shoulder was shattered that you can't tap him on the shoulder because it, it, that injury still hurts, but you can't see it. Pam Simon, were you involved in activism prior to the shooting? Did you have causes dear to your heart? Yes, and one of those causes actually is what um, set up the circumstances that I met Gabrielle Giffords. Uh, I was a teacher in the Marana School District, I was very active in the Arizona Education Association, the Teachers Association, and uh, we started from our district uh, sending up small groups of citizen lobbyists, a combination of teachers and parents and administrators and school board members. And we were very proud of our model. And, and actually, the very first trip to the state capitol that I made was also the first week that Gabrielle Giffords was a newly elected state representative. I think she had just turned 30. And she was one of our first meetings. So I was being an activist on behalf of education. And what struck us immediately is Gabby's interest in this subject. Very often, uh, we found that members of the legislature would try to instruct us on what we should do in education which of course just totally pissed us off. But um, Gabby asked lots of questions. Um, I subsequently met her at forums and things over the next couple of years and a friendship formed. 
And that led to me being involved in her run for Congress. And I retired that same year. So it was a lot of fun to be involved in the, in the, it was a lot of fun to be involved in the campaign. And I was quite flabbergasted when she asked me to join her staff. I looked at her and said, you know, I don't think I'm qualified to work in a congressional staff. And she said, Pam, for God's sake, you are a junior high teacher. You can do anything. (laughs) And in all honesty, (laughs) the skills transferred very well. My guest today is Pam Simon. She was a congressional staffer for Gabby Giffords, uh, who is a survivor of the January 8th shooting and has since become an activist. What are the projects that you're working on? How do you spend your time with both your resilience and your insight and your passion and activism? I'd like to go back just a little bit to the beginning. Um, I left the uh, congressional office uh, when it when it closed uh, before the election in which Ron Barber filled out her term. And I was um, at that point really ready to move on and 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 also, uh, I'd had this grinding feeling that I needed to use this experience in in some bigger way. It was about four weeks after I had left the congressional office that I woke up to the headlines that there had been a horrific shooting in Aurora in the theater. And immediately, not only does the PTSD flood back, but I could just so clearly visualize what people were going through, the phone calls they were getting, many of the same things that happened to us, as is the nature of a mass shooting. And I remember just this rage filling me and the, the feeling that I needed to do something. And by serendipity, uh, a young man called from Mayors Against Illegal Guns, an organization started by Mayor Bloomberg and the mayor of Boston, to gather mayors together to address gun violence, primarily as it affected the the people in their cities. And that has now grown to a a huge network of of mayors. There was not another organization that... um, used survivor voices at that point. There there wasn't really any place that a survivor story could be used. This young man from Mayors Against Illegal Guns asked if I would join some of the other January 8th survivors in signing a letter that would be published in the Wall Street Journal. And I said, yes, absolutely. All of the guardedness that we have to have of having an opinion in the congressional office fell away. I realized I was free to speak. And so that was step one. And a few weeks later, I joined several other January 8th survivors in going to New York and making a um, public service announcement, challenging the presidential candidates, which was Romney and Obama, to talk about gun violence. So So you were able to bring in that message to that year's election. Well, Interestingly, guns were mentioned once in that one time in a debate. Uh, neither candidate wanted to touch it. That was 2012. And this is after having a member of Congress shot. It was just a forbidden subject. And we had uh, a challenge called Demand a Plan, asking the con- 
presidential candidates to give us a plan to deal with gun violence. We had 4,000 people sign up the first day, and we were so thrilled, only (laughs) 4,000. But that was the beginning. That was the very first that survivor voices had been used. And I made many trips that year back to Washington, D.C., to New York, to speak to groups, to do radio and TV, and to try to carry this message to our elected officials. And since that time in 2012, a survivor network has been formed that has thousands of people, unfortunately, that have experienced gun violence, either being wounded themselves, having had somebody taken from them through gun violence, or it's affected their family directly, a cousin, an aunt, a sister. The ripple effects are amazing. Also, right after the Sandy Hook shooting, a young woman in Indianapolis was filled with that same kind of rage that I felt, and she started a Facebook page and said, I want to do something. Does anybody want to help me? And it has now grown into Moms Demand Action Network of over 4 million people. And Moms Demand Action, by the way, is open to anyone who has ever had a mom. So we have single people, we have men, women, uh, young people, and now after the Florida shooting and the tremendous new voices that are joining this effort and amplifying the message are now forming an organization through Every Town for Gun Safety called Students Demand Action. And I have met with a few of the Tucson organizing students. These young people are just amazing. And so what I'm seeing is from that very first time that I was asked to speak out is the the message has grown and grown and grown. And so in answer to your question, what what do I do? Um, I speak uh, any place. People give me a call and I'm happy to do, uh, to speak and talk about the work that's happening. I encourage people always to learn, to go to the websites. Gabby and Mark started an organization called Americans for Responsible Solutions, and that has now been renamed to Giffords, The Courage to Fight Gun Violence. I encourage people to go to that great website to get information. Every Town for Gun Safety also has an excellent website where you can get a lot of information. Also, Moms Demand Action. And educate yourself about what are some of the numbers, because we truly do have an unbelievable epidemic. I was like everybody else that morning that I drove to Safeway. Gun violence was something that happened to other people in other parts of town and other parts of the country. But it doesn't always happen to other people. And it happens to 96 people a day are killed by firearms. And a huge number of that is suicides. And all of these things are preventable. We're smart people. We reduce traffic deaths by putting some safety measures in place. And there are many things that can be done. What I hear over and over from people is uh, people intent on getting a firearm to do damage will do it anyway. But do we have to make it so easy? Yes, some kids are still going to get into the aspirin bottle. 
but we took steps to make it very difficult. So some people are going to drive a car unlicensed, but we have taken steps to make sure that vehicles are licensed. And so there are a lot of things we can do. The first and probably the most logical is to do comprehensive background checks. And I've had gun-owning relatives say to me, well, my, I bought my guns from a licensed dealer and I did the background check. But right here in Pima County, you can go to a gun show once a month out at the Pima County Fairgrounds with absolutely no ID. And you could fill your trunk with firearms, very heavy-duty firearms, if you had the money to purchase them. And those can be used in any way you want. We have absolutely no idea of what your age is, what your criminal background is, whether you're a uh, domestic violence abuser. So what if we plugged that hole? It would slow, it would slow someone's ability. And I think one of the most tragic things, and I wanna mention a sign that I saw at the march, a very elderly man, a grandfather, and he was walking with a walker, and I will choke up here, but on the front of the walker was a sign that said, my grandson killed himself with a gun that he purchased that same day. We need a waiting period. And how true. If somebody that in a fit of uh, a, a moment, someone who is in a state of depression for whatever reason, had to just pause and think, maybe long enough for somebody else to intervene, how that could change the narrative. So there's so much that we can do, but we have to be in conversation and quit polarizing. How have you been able to work on this issue in a non-polarizing way? It seems to bring out lots of polar opposites. What I've sadly witnessed so many times is that people entrench and shout and uh, become completely closed to where the other person is. Whenever you have a conversation with somebody that has a very, very different viewpoint, I believe that it's very important to try to figure out where that person is coming from. Where is their self-interest? What got them to that point or that place? And I think of a time when we were holding here in Tucson a vigil to honor the children that were killed at Sandy Hook. I believe it was the one-year anniversary and we were in a park. And several individuals showed up wearing camouflage with rifles, with sidearms on, with signs saying, don't take away my Second Amendment rights, and looking pretty darn scary. And I believe that their intent was to intimidate the group that were ringing bells to honor the children that were killed. So there was some shouting from back and forth, people wanting them to leave, feeling it was not appropriate for them to be there. I walked over to one young man and introduced myself, and he wouldn't give me his name. He said, you can just call me citizen. And I said, okay, citizen, I just want you to understand that we're just honoring some children 
here, and we'd love for you to join us, but you are, you know, clearly having the firearms is very deeply concerning to some of the people in the audience who have also lost children and loved ones. And he wouldn't make eye contact, stared straight ahead and looked to me to be, you know, maybe 19 or 20. And so I said, do you go to uh, the university? And still looking straight ahead, he said, um, for a couple semesters, not now. And I said, oh, what were you studying? And clearly he was irritated <laughs> that I was hanging around. And I said, how committed are you to this issue? And then he looked at me and he said, well, I'm very committed to it. And I said, do you have time to talk and have coffee later? This is going to last about a half hour because I bet you we can find some common ground. He said, I don't think so. And I said, you know, I should let you know that I was shot twice in a, in a mass shooting, and that's why I'm here today, what brought me to this issue. And then he looked directly at me and said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I said, see, we've just found some common ground. We can both agree that we don't like to see people get hurt by gun violence. I said, what, what made you so interested in being part of this group? And I said, you must have grown up with guns. And he said, no. He said, I've, I've, this is the first gun I've ever had. I just got into this group when I went to college. And I'm not in college anymore, but I just like the people. And what hit me was his self-interest was wanting to belong. And there was a space that uh, he may not have changed. He may have walked away having absolutely no different thoughts. But the one thought that he may have had is that he had a conversation with somebody that was directly affected by gun violence. And maybe that put a tiny wedge into his thought process. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do, whether it's their uncle over Thanksgiving dinner, or whether it's, um, you know, just somebody they see on the, uh, you know, at a forum, that rather than shouting, to try to get in conversation. And the more we can bring this issue to a conversational rather than a shouting level, that includes our conversations with elected officials, I think there is the real hope for some progress. We'll have to leave it there. My guest today has been Pam Simon, she's been working on a memoir about being a survivor of the January 8th shooting in Tucson, which has led her to be an activist for gun violence prevention. She was a high school teacher and middle school English teacher for many years before she went to work in the congressional office for her friend Gabby Giftertz. After the shooting, she worked for Mayor Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns for two years and now serves as volunteer for Moms Demand Action and frequently speaks at a variety of events and forums. She's also a part of the Everytown National Survivor Network, which is referred to as the club no one wants to be in. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager.